Well, good morning, and happy Mother's Day to you uh, who are mothers out there. Uh, it's been good to pray with you on these Sunday mornings, brothers and sisters, and it's also been good to study the scriptures with you. And we're going to continue to do that this morning as we uh, start this series in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. But before we go there, would you just pray with me uh, before we get started? Father, we, we thank you for the Lord's Day, that even, even as we have to get together around our screens and, and think about scripture this way, uh, we still celebrate and we still worship you uh, because of the fact of Christ's um, resurrection from the dead. We thank you uh, for your mercy to us that we, we know is true because Christ has risen from the dead. So we praise you this morning for your goodness, your kindness to us. We ask that you would give us wisdom and, and help to understand what the Bible says as we uh, read it and think about it. And Father, we, we especially thank you uh, this morning for our mothers, for those who have uh, cared for us and loved us, for those who have uh, been like instruments of your mercy in our lives. Uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, for many of us, our mothers have sacrificed more than, than we truly know. Uh, they have taught us and disciplined us and helped us and led us to Christ, and many have worked jobs even outside the home, uh, and then come home to work the job inside the home. Um, Father, we, we are grateful to you for how you've used mothers uh, to care for us, and we thank you for our moms. Uh, Lord, we, we ask for your mercy and your comfort for those who, who don't have just exactly what they would uh, were planning for and hoping for in the area of motherhood, whether it's missing the, the, the children that they once had or, or um, missing the children that they had hoped to have. Lord, we, we pray that you would uh, grant peace and, and rest uh, to, to moms who, who have unmet expectations in this area, uh, that, that you would be their, their consolation, that you would be their, um, their, their hope and their, their prize, uh, even beyond the loss and what they miss in this world. Uh, Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the Bible. Uh, would you teach us this morning? Help us to honor you and what we think and how we respond to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you would find 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that's where we'll be this morning. We're going to continue in Paul's letters uh, to the church at Thessalonica. And last week I, I gave you a summary of these two letters uh, in the form of five essentials for an enduring church. And I told you that if a church is going to endure, even through the, the very difficult experiences of things like persecution for the gospel, then, then that church uh, must have faithful leadership, faithful preaching, a fruitful response to the word of God, and then uh, the fruit of holiness and the fruit of, of hope. Uh, and for any, any church to neglect one of those things is to, to open the door to forgetting the gospel and then possibly even falling away from the faith. Uh, this week, we're going to actually dig into the text and start in chapter 1, verse 1, and see some of Paul's faithful leadership in the, in the, the area of prayer. Uh, we'll see some principles here that, that we can follow. And we've been spending a lot of time together as a church praying, uh, even while we've been stuck in our homes. Uh, but here we're going to see that, that prayer was an important aspect of Paul's ministry also to this church. 
And you don't have to be a pastor to follow these principles. Anyone and everyone can pray for their church, and in fact should pray for their local church. Uh, and here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, a good part of that work of prayer is found in thanksgiving, giving thanks to the Lord. In his helpful book, Praying with Paul, the author D.A. Carson asks the question, for what do we commonly give thanks? And then, then he offers a, a pretty strong corrective uh, to uh, an improper balance in prayer when he says, what we most frequently give thanks for betrays what we most highly value. If a large percentage of our thanksgiving is for material prosperity, it's because we value material prosperity. And then he goes on to connect that thought even with Paul's letters, Paul's, Paul's prayers. He says, Paul's thanksgivings may startle us. They may seem alien to us, for they do not focus on what many of us cherish. Paul gives thanks for signs of grace among Christians, especially to the ones that he writes to. And here's the priority, not only of Paul's uh, writings, Paul's prayers, but also of most all biblical prayers. Not, not an emphasis so much on physical circumstances, but, but on spiritual realities. In these verses, Paul, Paul offers thanks to God for the reality that, that the church is spiritually alive. That is a matter of giving thanks to God. So church, even, even in the midst of, of life's troubles, life's difficulties, thankfulness to God is still possible by, by the example of the Bible uh, because robust thankfulness is dependent on things that are much more lasting than earthly concerns. We give thanks not so much for what life includes here, but because of the bigger picture of, of how God has shown his mercies and his grace in our spiritual lives. So as we read these words this morning, consider your own prayer life. Reflect on the things that you're thankful for. And, and latch on to these principles so that you can practice uh, in your own life uh, the things that Paul demonstrates here in his prayer for the church. So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1. Uh, we'll go all the way through uh, verse 10. So the whole chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 begins the same way that Paul begins all of his letters, and there's four major parts. First, he tells uh, who wrote the, this letter. It's Paul, and he tells who, who else was with him when he wrote, so Silvanus and Timothy. Then he mentions the church he's writing to. This is the church in Thessalonica. And then he gives this, this greeting of grace and peace. That's in every one of Paul's letters. And then he's, he includes a section of, of giving thanks to God for the church. And that's a typical uh, way that he opens up all of his letters, except for the letter to the Galatians. Galatians is the only one of Paul's letters that doesn't include a section of giving thanks. And you can go back and listen to Jeremy's sermons uh, on Galatians to, to see a few reasons why Paul may have omitted that section in his letter. But here in 1 Thessalonians, we see a great contrast to Galatians, because this is actually the letter that has the longest section of thanksgiving of any of Paul's letters. So we read here in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you. And we're going to cover the whole of chapter 1, and you might think the thanksgiving is over. But then we read again in verse 13 of chapter 2, we also thank God constantly for this. Paul goes on through chapter 2. You might think the thanksgiving is over, but then again in chapter 3 and verse 9, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? Really, all of all the way through chapter 3 is Paul's thanksgiving for the church. And that's more than half of this letter in the spirit of thanksgiving for the church of Thessalonica. And I'll point out all that to you, not, not so that you go back and count verses, but just to demonstrate again that Paul has this deep connection to the church. We see it even in the way that he introduces this letter. We don't want to skip over uh, these parts as if they're less important. Uh, they really build the foundation for understanding what Paul is saying to this church that he loves so much. So out of the overflow of Paul's heart, his mouth speaks. And as he gives thanks to God, he shows his priorities in consideration of this church. So I want to direct your attention in this passage to biblical principles for giving thanks. Biblical principles for giving thanks. We're, we're always wanting to be make more faithful in our worship of the Lord. If you're a believer, that's your desire. Uh, the way to do that is to be more, more biblical, to obey the Bible's instructions, to obey or follow the, the examples given in the Bible. And here's a, here's a good example, a faithful example of giving thanks to the Lord. And I want you to think this morning in terms of, of a Thanksgiving meal. Now, Thanksgiving is nowhere close to us on our calendar, uh, but you have probably experienced Thanksgiving before. There's, there's always a plate full of food. And so this is a helpful way to picture what Paul is, is telling us, teaching us this morning. Uh, there, there's a plate in our in our passage, and then there's there's a, a pile of food in our passage. So we're going to talk about the way of giving thanks, and that's the plate. How does Paul carry along his thanksgiving? Uh, how does he how does he work out thanksgiving in his prayers? And and then there's the what of giving thanks, and this is the actual food on the plate, the substance of thanksgiving. So we're going to answer the question: What's what's the right content of thanksgiving in prayer? Now I know most of you are going to want a fork or a napkin at this Thanksgiving meal, but those don't factor into my analogy very well, so we're going we're gonna to skip those things. So we have the, the plate, the way of giving thanks, and then the substance, the content, the, the what of giving thanks. So Paul shows us how to give thanks, and he describes three ways just in these, these few verses. First of all, in, 
in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So he's mentioning the people that he's, he's thankful for. Giving thanks is a part of prayer, and it's a frequent, purposeful, thoughtful, specific practice in prayer. When you pray, give thanks frequently, purposefully, specifically. Paul speaks as if he, he thanks God even specifically for the individual members of this church. I think of this just like confessing sin is best practiced specifically and individually, and then thankfulness to God is best practiced specifically. So thank you for my friends is good, but, but thank you for my, my friend Adam is better. But Paul moves on even more further. In verse 3, he says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. So here's the second way to give thanks. It's by remembering. Paul remembers certain specifics, certain details about the people he's praying for. And the effect here is an increased amount of thankfulness. With every layer of detail, there's a greater depth to seeing God's grace and God's goodness and as you, as you dig into to thankfulness, you, you meditate on the, the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord that are worked out in people's lives. So I can be very thankful for Harvest Point Community Church. But Harvest Point isn't just a church. It's a church made up of, of people. The people are the church. And so there are people who are brothers and sisters in Christ that I'm thankful for. And, and I don't just thank God for those individuals. But, but when you thank God even this week for the people in your church Think of the specific reasons that you are thankful for them, the specific details of, of what makes you thankful for those other people, your brothers and sisters. Well, Paul goes one step further in verse 4, and he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So Paul's mentioned those people that he's thankful for. He remembers specific details about those people, and then he concentrates his knowledge of God's grace in their lives. Now, this is a challenge. Laziness is not helpful to prayer. You have to know people. And then as you pray, recall the things that you know about them. Even just to just express thankfulness to the Lord, there, there takes a, a bit of effort. But this is a way to reflect on the grace of God. Here's a way to give God the glory in prayer by, by meditating on and finding joy in how God has worked in the lives of people people who were once the enemies of God, but now God has worked in them, and now they're the friends of the Lord. They're the followers of Christ. And then turn that thinking into thankfulness to God. So giving thanks is, is really a matter of giving praise to God. That's exactly the idea you get when you read through the Psalms. This connection of thanks and praise, they go hand in hand. So Psalm 7 says, I will give thanks to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. In Psalm 9, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Psalm 34, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 104, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Psalm 108, verse 3, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. So here are many verses where giving thanks and praising God are, are, are one 
and the same effort, one and the same in prayer. They go hand in hand. And in fact, in the Old Testament, that word that's translated praise is oftentimes translated uh, thanks. It just depends on how, how it's used in the verse. They go together. And any person who would be quick to thank the Lord is, is the one who would be quick to praise the Lord. So see thankfulness to the Lord as a means to praise him for his work. To praise him for the work of God in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, it's the evidence of God's grace that makes up the what of giving thanks. So we've, we've talked about that, that plate, the way to carry along thanksgiving. Uh, but now we're going to talk about the what of thanksgiving. The, the, the food that's on the plate, the actual substance of that, that thanksgiving meal. So what's the right content of thanksgiving in prayer? Well, in the New Testament, there's, there's about a dozen references to giving thanks before meals. That's something we do frequently, right? And in, in the Bible, it's especially for the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper. Uh, but, but apart from those, giving thanks is almost always in response to God's grace. So when Jesus healed the ten lepers, one of them returned and, and gave thanks to Jesus. Jesus gave thanks to his Father at the raising of Lazarus from the dead. In the book of Revelation, the, the elders in heaven thank God because he, he raises up his power and he, he destroys his opponents and, and that works to grant relief to God's people who are suffering. We can go back to the Old Testament and see a lot of the same idea. You remember Jonah, right? After running from God, he was thrown into the sea and then he was swallowed by a fish and he, he saw that, that act, the, the fish swallowing him as a means of, of God's grace and salvation. And at the end of, of his journey in the fish, he said, I, I with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. In the same way, the prophet Isaiah was reflecting on God's mercy towards the remnant of Israel who would, who would be saved from destruction. And he said, you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. That's God's saving mercy. I've already read several of the Psalms, but there's, there's another repeated refrain in the Psalms that I haven't mentioned yet, and it goes like this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. There's that connection with giving thanks to the Lord and his steadfast love, his, his saving love. That phrase appears in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 also, and I, I find this interesting. In chapter 6, Solomon has just finished building uh, the impressive temple of the Lord. And he, he prays to the Lord to dedicate the temple, and they, they offer a lot of sacrifices to the Lord. And at the beginning of, of 2 Chronicles 7, God sends fire from heaven to consume those sacrifices. And, and when the people saw that fire, 2 Chronicles 7.3 says this, When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement, and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. But the interesting part to me is comes in verse 4, because from verses 4 to verse 6, it's just kind of a, a report of what happened. Just a listing of the events. The king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their posts. The Levites also with their instruments 
for music to the Lord that the King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord. And then there's this phrase, it's just kind of out of the blue. In my Bible, it's marked off by hyphens, and yours it might be a, a parenthesis. Uh, but then he says, for his steadfast love endures forever. It doesn't, it doesn't thrust along the meaning there. It's, it's almost like an aside, like this extra thought came into the writer's mind. King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord. By the way, his steadfast love endures forever. And I think of those ancient ways that people used to address kings. It's common in the book of Daniel. Whenever mention was made of the king, they'd stop. Oh, king, live forever. Didn't have anything to do with the address or the conversation, but to think of the king brought about this thought, Oh, king, live forever. And so it's the same, similar in the Old Testament, as if these two things go together. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. So this is the biblical attitude. Thankfulness to God connects with God's faithful, saving love. So certainly Paul had this in mind as he's writing these verses, because Paul was a most faithful Jew. He would have known the Old Testament well, and he's following the same kind of pattern in 1 Thessalonians. And he thanks God in these verses for, for some indisputable evidence that God has demonstrated this grace, his, his faithful saving love, that God has actually converted idol worshipers into Christ followers. And so in verse 9, that's what he says, the report is that they have turned, from, uh, turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And that's not a small conversion. Church, this is the miracle of the new birth. That is not a small thing to give thanks for. That is the ultimate thing to give thanks for. When God changes people completely, that they are no longer described in their nature by idol worshiping, they are described as serving the living and true God. That is the most drastic change. And so Paul is thankful for how he sees in the lives of the Thessalonians evidence to prove that change. This evidence comes in kind of in two different cycles, two different waves. So in verse 3, when Paul remembers certain details about the church, he, he remembers their work of faith and their labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you probably recognize these, these virtues that Paul mentions. He does several times in the Bible. Uh, this faith and hope and love. It comes in that order in 1 Corinthians 13, where the emphasis is love. So he ends with love. Here in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, the order is faith, love, hope. And these letters, I told you last week, the, the emphasis is on the hope. So he ends with, with that. The order is not very important. But these are our basics to Christian character. Every believer should be characterized by faith and love and hope. But the virtues here in this verse aren't, aren't uh, the major part of Paul's emphasis. He's, he's really emphasizing uh, the fruit of the virtues, what, what comes out of the virtues. So he's, he's emphasizing the, the work of faith. And this is what he's thankful for, the work of faith. And he's pointing at the, the results of, of the Thessalonians' faith. So faith results in works. Yes, we are saved by faith alone in Christ, but after being saved, 
our faith results in works, good works that please the Lord. But then he also remembers their labor of love. And the word labor doesn't point to the result, but it points to the, the, the cost, the effort, uh, what is put into this act. Whatever uh, love points to, to what they are willing to pay to demonstrate that love. So the NIV says it in a helpful way, the, the labor prompted by love, and that's the idea. Work speaks of what you get from the effort. Labor speaks of what you, what you give to the effort, what it costs you. So here's the, the willingness to sacrifice for the good of others. That's what true love is. So God's love cost him his son. And so in this is love, the Bible says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the, the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And Christ's love cost him his life. So in Ephesians 5, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Even in Ephesians 5, he connects that with people. This is the kind of love that, that husbands are to have for their wives. Husbands are called to demonstrate this kind of love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So when, when God has done a true work in a person's life, then he understands Christ's sacrifice and God's sacrifice. And that, that person who, who sees what God has, has given for him, has done for him, is then ready to give and and even to sacrifice for the good of others, and labor, and give for the care of his brothers and sisters, and, and give for the sake of that gospel good news spreading to unbelievers. But Paul remembers also their steadfastness of hope. This is the endurance, the perseverance that springs from hope. The hope inspires endurance. This hope in Romans 8 is is the glory that, that far outweighs any of the suffering of this present time. It's, it's this hope that we don't see yet, but we wait for it with patience. That, that's the steadfastness of hope. This waiting patiently for the glory that's coming. We know it's coming, and so we wait for it. This conviction that, that God will work out what he has started in us. And so with the return of Christ, it will all come to fruition. It will all be completed. Now, in case these three words are still a bit confusing, I can illustrate it by, by thinking of some construction work that I've been a part of. I've removed a few walls and houses in my, my time, um, but one is particularly memorable. Uh, a house where we, we had to uh, remove a wall and put in a, a support beam, a structural beam, to hold up the, the roof where we removed the wall. It took my crew most of a day to get that beam set. It was a lot of work. But my family would often ask me the question when I came home from those kind of work days, well, what did you do today? And I could say, well, we took out a wall uh, and put in a beam. Or I could show them pictures of what was accomplished. I could show them a before and after. There was a, a wall here, and now it's gone. And there, there might even be a gap in the ceiling where, where I could point out the, the beam is installed in the ceiling. And that was my work for the day, in Paul's words, the work of my effort. That's the product. That's what I accomplished. We removed the wall and supported the ceiling. Or I could show them a picture, not of the ceiling, but of the floor. Uh, not where the wall used to be, but, but the, the pile of sweat still on the floor after the day's work. Because after spending several hours in the attic in the middle of the summer, when it was over 100 degrees in the attic, 
a lot of my sweat drip to the floor. And that's evidence of, of my labor. That's the, the hard work and the, the fruit of my, my sacrifice that day to accomplish that work. Or I could just let them see me at the end of the day at home. Let them see me resting in the chair because I was tired. Because I, I gave up a lot. I, I knew that, that there was a lot to be done. And if we just uh, kept at it, kept working at it, then, then we would accomplish that work and, and relief would come at the end of the day. And that was, was a picture of my, my steadfastness, my, my endurance, my perseverance. And those, those might be good pictures to illustrate the differences here, but, but what Paul is speaking of is, is much more valuable than just the hard work of taking a wall out in a house. He is giving gratitude to God because of the effect of this newfound conversion of the people in the church. Their lives are demonstrating newness in Christ, different than the non-believing world around them. Their faith has resulted in good works, works that please the Lord and help others. Their love has been motivated by, by sacrificial service, or their love has, has motivated sacrificial service. They're, they've been willing to give up things in their own life for the good of others. And their, their new hope has inspired an enduring spirit. They've been willing to persevere even through the difficulties of things like affliction and persecution over the gospel and endured in their spirit. And this is the character of a faithful, fruitful church. They are fruitful and giving and enduring. And so Paul is thankful. He's giving thanks to God for, for this work in the church. But then Paul goes back for for seconds at this Thanksgiving meal, and it's as if his second plate is more full than the first plate. And like he often does, Paul Paul seems to go on and on. I can imagine Paul being like one of those men that you just you go and, and you think to have a have a conversation with them, and yet you just kind of sit back and listen. Just let them talk and, and I'll soak it all in. Because even when he writes, he just he just keeps going. One thought leads to another on and on, and it's, it's just all good stuff. But, but as he is giving thanks to God, he kind of gets into this pattern in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And as we read, beginning in verse 4, we see the, the bulk of, of Paul's thankfulness, the ultimate reason he is thankful to God. Not just for the, the evidence that he sees or the, the work that the, the church is producing, but, but this bigger picture. He is ultimately thankful because of the evidence he sees that God has chosen these believers. So in verse 4, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He's just saying that, that he is confident in the authenticity of their faith. Their conversion is real, and he's certain of it because of this evidence that he sees. And here's, a, here's clear Bible evidence to, to destroy that way of thinking, as if to say we can never have assurance of our faith. It's not necessary to live in this constant uncertainty, as if, has God really brought me out of sin, saved my soul from, from condemnation? Not always wondering, am I really under God's grace or not? Paul said, we know. We know that God has chosen you because of what we see. And then he proved it with evidence. And here also is, is a warning for anyone who would swing the pendulum too far the other way and say that their assurance rests only on profession. Paul says, we know and then he gives 
evidence of that knowledge. There should always be a testing in one's life for, for the fruit of salvation. So Paul says he knows, and then he tells what he knows. In verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And it's not as if the church was built on some shaky foundation. Verse 5 describes the effort of Paul and Silas and Timothy. What they presented to the church was a message that had no personal profit attached to it. They came to Thessalonica. They worked at a trade for themselves to provide for their own needs. And then they preached in the hopes that they would see people's lives changed by the gospel. We could say that Paul exemplified this work of faith, this labor of love, this steadfastness of hope in his own ministry in that city. So if there was any appropriate context for the, for the gospel to bear fruit, true fruit, it was through Paul's ministry at Thessalonica. But the, the people there who became the church there didn't, didn't just hear and see Paul. Verse 6 says that they became imitators. They imitated him. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. And we almost see this, this idea of, of a, a connecting the dots of discipleship in the Thessalonian church. They had followed the pattern that Paul set, which was Paul following the pattern that the Lord set. And this pattern is, is facing affliction, but also having joy in that affliction. So in verse 6, you became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Affliction is, is pressure. It's like, like squeezing a grape until it bursts. Affliction just helps define our priorities. See, you're willing to suffer for what's important to you, but you're not willing to suffer what's, for what's not important to you. And the church at Thessalonica saw that the gospel was, was worth suffering for. Even while they were being squeezed like a grape, they gladly received this word of the gospel. The affliction was worth it. More than that, they didn't just grin and bear it, as it were. They, they had the joy of the Holy Spirit. Even while they suffered affliction, they had joy. I can't help but think what uh, this question of, of how did they have joy while they were suffering affliction? That's because the joy is not wrapped up in the affliction, but in what the affliction points to. So 1 Peter tells us, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So the sufferings point to the glory that's coming. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I want to share his sufferings, Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. He was seeing the sufferings leading to the, the fact of resurrection. And then even Jesus was able to endure the cross and despise the shame, Hebrews 12 says, because of the joy set before him. Christ knew that his work was going to work. That was the joy set before him, and so he was able to endure the cross. It's not that the affliction is the blessing, but the outcome that the affliction points to. Now, there have been whole groups in the history of the church, monks in fact, that, that got this all wrong. They, they purposefully suffered for the sake of suffering, as if the suffering was the blessing. But that's not what the Bible's pointing to. Joy endures affliction because Joy sees through the affliction. 
while the unbelieving world would be overcome and give up. Joy is like a, a set of x-ray glasses that, that gives us a better perspective. We see through the affliction, through the suffering, to what's on the other side. There's a hope beyond affliction in this world that rests squarely in the accomplishment of Christ for the eternal good of all those who trust him. So we don't see just the affliction. We see through the affliction, through the suffering, to the hope. But Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And the murder of Jesus wasn't enough to quench the world's hatred of the truth. So the world continues to pour out its hatred for Jesus on all those who follow Jesus. Not only for Paul, but also on the Thessalonians. Not only on that church, but even on churches today. So persecution today is just a, a filling up of the afflictions of Christ. And the world will continually persecute Christ if he was here. But since he is not physically present, then the, the world continues to persecute his followers. So all those who would truly follow Christ can expect to face some sort of affliction, some sort of persecution. But the Thessalonian church saw that that affliction, that persecution was worth it for Christ. They didn't just imitate the faithful model. They, they passed on a faithful example. So as the affliction spread, so did the example of, of enduring that affliction with joy. This is, this is remarkable to me. This new church full of new believers facing persecution for this newfound faith. And yet they are so changed by the gospel that they sound out their faith. Uh, it's like, like they, they blew a trumpet over and over and over again, continually blowing so that their faith traveled regions away. It's not like they just went out and passed out some information about their church. For a circle of 200 miles, it was common knowledge that, that the Thessalonian church had, had left the worship of idols, and now they had turned to worship the true and living God. And they were being persecuted for that truth, and yet they endured that persecution. It's like a lawn full of dandelions, right? Some of the most annoying things in my yard. They sprout up. And for the Thessalonian church, they, the opposition tried to cut them down. But, but every time they were cut down, seven or eight more spring up in their place. And they get cut down again. And then 50 or 60 of them spring up. And before you know it, the, the testimony of the gospel is like a million little yellow flowers dotting the countryside. Their testimony was so prevalent, Paul said, that they didn't need to say anything. By the time Paul and his, his uh, help came to a place, the gospel was already known there because of the Thessalonians' story. So he didn't have to say anything. And this is the way that the gospel works. From Christ to Paul to the Thessalonians to Macedonia and Achaia and on and on and on throughout history and throughout the world to today. See, churches today, we're not blazing any new trails. We're just following in this long line of godly people who, who were changed by the word and changed for the word. And the church of tomorrow will simply be another link in that chain, carrying on what, what they've received from us. Well, when that is the testimony of a church, there's much to be thankful for. To hear that in that church, that the gospel is, is worth the cost to know that affliction will ensue and yet to be so affected by God's mercy and the hope 
of Christ's return, that you, you spread this faith beyond your community into the surrounding regions. What more could Paul be thankful for in this church at Thessalonica? What more could any pastor or any church member be, be thankful for in his own church? I can think of nothing more important. And so what Paul was thankful for is what, what we are thankful for. We praise God for his grace to bring sinners to salvation in Christ, to change their, their outlook and their hope and their daily living. So Harvest Point, may we be a church where the grace of God, where the, the hope of Christ's return is our motive for endurance and our testimony in the world around us. Father, we, we pray that, that these verses would describe us not only in our response to the gospel, but also in our thankfulness to you, that we would be so overwhelmed with praise for your good work, that we, we utter that praise in thanksgiving, in words of thanksgiving. Would you cause us to be a thankful church, a worshiping church, who praises you for the things that are worth thanking you for. In Christ's name we pray.